come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 212 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So for this episode, it's going to be my last Italian horror month for this year. And the two movies I'm going to be paired up here are interesting because they don't make the greatest double feature. But what I'm doing here is that I watch Bones and All. This is the most popular movie that is a co-production from Italy in the horror genre that I have not seen. And I have that paired up with the highest rated one from Italy that I hadn't seen as well. So that's why it's Bones and All and The Demon, and that is from 1963. So then also on here, I have mini reviews for you of the 2023 release of Thanksgiving. You got to go see that in the theater. I have a screener of Emmanuel's Revenge, which is kind of funny because this is an erotic thriller that is from Italy as well. Then I got to watch The Strange Vice of Mrs. Vard, gave that a rewatch. That's my traverse through the threes. No, it's one of the other ones in the past that I hadn't got a chance to watch, but I'm getting a rewatch. Also got to watch a screener of Bad CGI Gator. This is a full moon film. And then a rewatch of Don't Torture a Duckling, which I know that is a Trek to the Twos movie there. And also have one episode of Fear the Walking Dead, as I'm going to try to now get all caught up on that show. And I think it's actually coming to an end here soon. So other than that, I don't think there's anything I need to get you up to speed with here than what I've already given to you. So what I will say is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review here is going to be Thanksgiving. This is from here in 2023, directed by Eli Roth, who also came up with the story here along with Jeff Rendell, and then he did the screenplay for this. This stars Patrick Dempsey, Nell Verlake, I think that's how you pronounce that, and then Gabriel Davenport. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between United States, Canada, and Australia. This is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis here being, after a Black Friday riot ends in a tragedy, a mysterious Thanksgiving-inspired killer terrorizes Plymouth, Massachusetts, the birthplace of the infamous holiday. So this is a movie that like horror fans 
first became a thing when we saw the faux trailer for Grindhouse. There were rumors that this was coming out, and they always turned out to be false. That is until now. I was excited that when I saw this was being shown, so I went on Sunday before the holiday itself to see at the Gateway Film Center. So what I'm going to say is that this feels like a late-run slasher to me. There's a good amount of comedy mixed in here. Now, we have a group of unlikable characters for the most part, and the kills are over the top, but I get that vibe that we're supposed to be rooting for the killer. So you're kind of just seeing what they will do next and what you'd get in a subgenre like this, especially as I was saying from those later-run movies. So let me actually give you some of the key people here. Like, we have Patrick Dempsey is the sheriff here of Eric Newland. There is Mitch Collins, who is Ty Olson. We have an appearance here of Gina Gershon as Amanda Collins. Our main character, I would say, is Jessica, portrayed by Verlaki. And then her boyfriend, at the time of the accident that's kind of the ensuing thing, is Bobby. And he is portrayed by Jalen Thomas Brooks. And we also have, like... Her friend group is Gabby, portrayed by Addison Ray. Her boyfriend is Evan, portrayed by Tommaso Sinelli. And then we have Yulia, who is Jenna Warren. Her boyfriend is Scuba, portrayed by Davenport. Now, something ends up happening, though, where she ends up dating Ryan, who is portrayed by Milo Mannheim. So I kind of want to just give you a little bit of that there, but I want to start with the tone now. This feels like the director and co-writer of the story of Roth getting back to form. We have these bro-type characters that are mostly that we're following. I didn't like them, but they felt like people I've gone to high school with or even college. Like, Gabby and Yulia are superficial and not given much depth. Evan never redeems himself for me. Scuba does as things go on. I did like Jessica as well. Now, there are others like Lonnie, who is portrayed by Mika Amonson. Now, he's a jerk high school athlete from another school that gets into it with Evan. There's also a diner waitress in Lizzie, portrayed by Amanda Baker, who was rude. Olsen was fine, but he disappeared for long stretches. Dempsey works as a sheriff. Gershon has a cameo, and I've realized that I'm actually discussing the acting here for the most part, so... I think that even though I don't necessarily like the characters, they work in the confines of a slasher to get a reaction out of me. So then let's go over to the effects, which is another part of the slashers that when I look for when I'm judging if they work or not, I love what they did here. This movie is brutal and it doesn't shy away from the kills. Most everything is done practically. If not, the CGI didn't bother me. I was quite impressed that what everything they did here goes back to either being related to Pilgrims or Thanksgiving related, and they are mean-spirited, which I also appreciate. I'll also pull on the cinematography here as I think they frame things well as this is just a well-made movie in my opinion like even the soundtrack worked for what was needed. So since I've only brought up a little bit let me go back to finishing what I wanted to say for the story. This feels like I said like a Friday the 13th Halloween or My Bloody Valentine in the vein of holiday slashers. We aren't getting much in the way of a story but this is more than I expected though. As it's almost there is a mystery here but I don't necessarily think it does a great job at you know, developing it, as I guess the killer fairly early on, but that wasn't really necessarily an issue for me. It does some things I don't necessarily, there might be a little bit of plot holes there, but it is what it is. So we also do have this riot here that rocked this town, and we are seeing the after effects a year later. There's a bit of a Jaws moment where Thanksgiving is so important to this town that they don't want to necessarily stop doing certain things. It is Plymouth, so that makes sense. Having the killer be dressed as a pilgrim, which I believe is John Carver, an actual person from history. I'll say one more time that I'm glad the kills stick with that theme and the holiday as much as they can. That's a good touch. 
I do know a gripe that I've seen is that the killer was easy to guess. I do think there could be some continuity issues there, as I was saying, but I ended up, you know, being right on who I thought. This doesn't ruin knowing who it was, as I don't know if the mystery is as important as it is to the characters in the movie, for obvious reasons there. So, there isn't much more to discuss here, so in conclusion, I had a blast. This is a great movie, but... Is it breaking new ground? No, but what it is doing is it gives you characters that you don't care for, and at least for me, I wanted to see how the killer was going to punish them. The effects and kills are brutal. I did love that. The acting was good enough to get a reaction out of me. I'd say the rest of the filmmaking was good. I'll credit here to the cinematography to help me frame things and to hide scenes as needed. Most everyone I've seen has rated this high, or even I've chatted with it like it. I'm not even the biggest slasher fan, but I had a lot of fun here. I'm excited to revisit this and maybe even incorporate it into my Thanksgiving traditions for the future. I hope that Roth stays on this track from here. And if you're a slasher fan, I'd say give this a watch. So my rating here for Thanksgiving is going to be an 8 out of 10. And for my second mini review here is going to be a screener that I got the chance to watch of Emmanuel's Revenge. This goes by the original title of Du et Des. Not really necessarily sure what that means. I actually tried looking it up when I was watching this, but I digress there. But this is from 2022. Directed between Monica Carpenzi and Dario Germani. Now Carpenzi also wrote this. And then this stars Beatrice Schiaffinino, Gianni Rossito, and Ilara Loriga. I think that's how you'd say that. But this is a romance thriller that is from Italy. I'd also say this kind of falls into a little bit of the like erotic with some of the stuff that we get here. And then this is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb. And the ratings are all over the place on Letterboxd. But I would say this is about a two, two and a half star movie over there. And the synopsis is a rich playboy spends his time recklessly playing with women. After seducing and dropping a model, he becomes infatuated with the mysterious Emmanuel, who proves to be equally deceitful and has a sinister agenda. So this movie I got a chance to check out thanks to Scott Matsiko. When I was looking into this, I figured that it wasn't horror, but the title intrigued me as a fan of exploitation cinema. I figured this was a modern take on the Emmanuel character and the films that came out in the 70s and 80s. So my wife, Jamie, also is intrigued, so she watches with me, actually. So then for this movie here, we are seeing a young woman look dazed. She walks along a bridge and we see her approaching the rail. Edited with this are flashes of what led her to be there. Now this movie is broken up into two parts in my opinion. The first part shows what we, you know, what got her to be where she is. Her name is Francesca and she's portrayed by Lorega. Now she is a model that is pursued by a rich entrepreneur who is Leonardo, portrayed by Rosado. He gets aggressive with her and wants her into his bed, and she rebuffs his efforts until he takes her away to Budapest. Now, the other part of this is Leo having moved on. We see him out to lunch with his daughter of Julia, portrayed by Miriam Dacina. Now, while there, Emmanuel catches his eye, and she is portrayed by Shafino. Now, this does seem to be a bit intentional as she spills a glass of wine on him. She then helps him clean it off in the bathroom, and then we see her manipulating him and playing hard to get. Much like the synopsis says, she does have some ulterior motives. Now, I wanted to set that up before I got into a bit more of the meat of what we get with this movie. This opening section does well at setting up Leo. What I like here is the whole time he is trying to convince Francesca that he's a good guy. There is a party where... 
we peek behind the facade, Jamie brought up to me that he seems like he just wants more of the chase and conquest, and I agree with her. What I also will say is that Rosito does a great job of taking on this role. I love to hate him, and his look is perfect for this. Then to the second half is set up to show how mysterious Emmanuel is. What I like here is that Shifano is gorgeous. I haven't seen any of the previous versions of this character, but I know that these are two elements are parts of the character. We already know the character of Leo, and we see him trying to conquer her. What I like is that much like Francesca, Emmanuel toes the line of giving in enough to keep him there and then playing hard to get. Now, there's a reveal here as to what her endgame is. I was partially wrong in my guess, but what is going on makes sense in the grand scheme. Much like Rosito's portrayal, I think Shafano holds her own opposite. What I'll also say is that this doesn't have the deepest story. It also doesn't necessarily need it, as this is more about the cat and mouse game between the two. There are bits, though, that if you're paying attention, factor back in later. I thought that was some good writing, in my opinion, which I did appreciate. I'll also credit the writer of Carponzi here, as she also helped to co-direct this. Then let me get over to the acting, which I thought was good around them. Dacina is solid as Leo's daughter. She factors into the climax, and it horrified Jamie at first. I thought it was effective, and I like the growth that it shows within Emmanuel as well. Larega is solid as this young model that is trying to maintain control over Leo. It is heartbreaking with what happens there. Then we also have Luca Avalano plays Michael who works for Leo. The rest of the cast rounds this out for what was needed. There's also a lot of nudity here, and this includes Larega, Dosina, and Shafino. This stays in line with what I know about the series. So then I'll also say this is well made. The cinematography is good. The framing is well done as well. There is a great sequence of the climax with a two-way mirror. That raises the tension for sure. Now there's also not much in the way of effects. We also don't need them. Soundtrack also fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this won't be a movie for everybody. I thought that this was a solid erotic romance thriller film. It ventures into the psychological with how things play out. The theme of revenge fits here and goes with the title. I thought the acting was good. I was intrigued to see where this went. It also handles heavy subject matter well. Not the greatest movie that falls into these subgenres or categories, but it's that's not meant as a slight though either. This is from Italy, so I had to watch it with subtitles, so if that's not an issue and you're looking for a movie like this, I'd recommend giving it a watch for sure. So my rating here for Emmanuel's Revenge is a 7 out of 10, and this should be coming to VOD here in the near future, so if what I said sounds good, keep an eye out for it. Then up next for you, I have my rewatch of a movie here for Italian Horror Month, and it is going to be The Strange Vice of Mrs. Vard, or it also goes by the title of Blade of the Ripper. This is from 1971, directed by Sergio Martino. Now, this, the original story was done by Eduardo Manzanos, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Ernesto Gastaldi, and then it looks like Vittorio Caronia also helped to collaborate on the screenplay. This stars George Hilton, Edward Finich, and Conchita Eraldo. I think that's how you might say that. So it also goes by the original title of Lo Strano Visio della Signora Vard. Now, this is a crime horror mystery thriller film. Also, could be considered a giallo as well. I mean, this is a giallo, but yeah. This is a co-production of Italy and Spain. Currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb. Nice. And a 3.6 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, an ambassador's wife discovers that one of the men in her life, either her husband, an ex-lover, or a current lover, may be a vicious serial killer. So this is one that I discovered through the horror show guide encyclopedia that I'm working through. 
It was listed under the alternate title of Blade of the Ripper, and I've now seen this a couple times. It is one that I was excited to revisit now that I'm more versed in Gialli. Wouldn't say I'm an expert by any stretch, but it was also fun to rewatch this since this is directed by Sergio Martino, written by Gastaldi, and featuring Fenich, as they're all Giallo royalty in my book. And probably everybody else's, or most everybody else's. So, now of course, this is one of the bigger titles in the subgenre. Upon my first watch, I didn't necessarily know much about these movies like this, or even necessarily appreciate them. Going back to what I said in my opening, and listening to podcasts, as well as watching documentaries, and just seeking out more, this works better for me. Now, while I want to start delving deep is in our lead of Julie Ward, portrayed by Fenich. She is so stunning, while also being a great actress. This is probably my introduction to her. What I like here is that the director of Martino and the co-writers of Manzanos and Gastaldi do a great job at fleshing this character out. The writing of her is so good, but Fenich also brings it to life. Julie is into kinky sex, which is what draws her to Jean, who is portrayed by the great Ivan Rasimov. He gets too violent with her, and I also get the idea that she wanted to be faithful to her husband. Now, I do realize that... As I'm recording this, she was seeing him and then ran off and got married to her husband, but she could ruin his career if she keeps seeing Jean. And I like how the elements fit into the story. Now let me go over to the mystery then here. I'll be honest, I didn't remember who the killer was, so this is like watching it the first time all over again. There are murders that happen before the Vards arrive in Vienna. That makes Neil, who is her husband of Neil Vard, portrayed by Alberto de Mendoza, not the killer of anybody you know previously. I'm not saying if he is involved or not, but that's just a fact. Jean is violent, so he could be the killer. He's been here the whole time as well. Now, watching movies like this, they're pushing him hard, so it made me pause. There's also George, portrayed by George Hilton, who we know is new here in town, but we don't know how long he's been there either. These are all red herrings or potential killers that we know. Now, Jolly, they can also toss in a random person who is doing this. So I did like that this kept me guessing until the end. And I'll be honest, I was partially correct, but I didn't guess what the full reveal was, so credit there. Now, this doesn't have necessarily the most deepest story, but what it does, though, is show Julie navigating this world. I've already said how good Fenich was. I thought Hilton, Razumov, and D. Mendoza are solid as the main red herrings around her. I also thought that Arialdi... And then we also have Manuel Gill and the rest of the cast push these characters where they end up. I also thought Eroldi, Manuel Gill, and the rest of the cast kind of push these characters to where they end up. Just as a heads up, this is a sleazy movie in the fact that we get quite a bit of nudity. We see Fenich nude quite a bit, and even Eroldi at one point, if you're looking for that, it is here. There's also some other people that we get to see. All that's left then is filmmaking. I'll start with the cinematography, and I'll say that this is shot beautifully. A sequence stuck out to me in the park with the character of Carol. Now, when that came up, I remembered, so that is saying something. Another scene in the rain between Julie and Jean. Those were both great. I like what they do with the flashbacks to fill in Julie's story. They use soft focus there, and the effects are subdued, but that's not necessarily a problem for me. I also thought the soundtrack was great. Not the best in this subgenre, but we get a couple of reoccurring themes to help signify what we're getting, and I appreciated that. So in conclusion, this is one of my favorite Giallo titles of the ones that I've seen. We have a solid murder mystery here. I love that we're exploring the backstory of Julia and Fenich does a great job of bringing her to life. The rest of the cast around her is great with special credit to Hilton and Razumov. This is a well-made with the cinematography and the soundtrack leading the way there. If you're into Gialli or want a sleazy murder mystery film, then I recommend this one here. So my rating for The Strange Vice of Mrs. Vard or Blade of the Ripper is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. I've actually came up half a point from the last time that I've seen this. And there's still room to go. 
Then for you, I have a screener of Bad CGI Gator. This is from here in 2023. This is directed by Danny Draven. It was written by Zalman Band, which I come to find out is Charles Band's son. And then this stars Maddie Lane, Michael Bonini, and Rebecca Stoughton. This is a comedy horror film that I should say is a full moon picture. It's from the United States, of course. It is sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a... Not enough ratings yet on Letterboxd, but most people are having this between like a two and a half and a three and a half star movie. With a synopsis being, six college students get a cabin in the swamplands of Georgia. They decide to throw their school laptops in a nearby lake in an act of youthful defiance, which unknowingly turns an alligator into a dreaded and insatiable CGI creature. So for this one here is one that I got the chance to see thanks to Laura from the Scandal Coactive. This was a full moon film, and when I saw the title, I knew it was going to be outrageous. Without watching this, I had a feeling this would be in line with modern full moon films, which I'm not always the biggest fan of. I'm still shocked when I get the chance to review movies from them. So anytime I see one from this company, I'm most likely going to jump on the chance to give it a watch, even if I know it's not going to be for me. So this runs about an hour long, and we don't get a lot in the way of character development, but that's not what we're here for, and we don't need it. This gives you enough setup while the alligator gets changed. It is from there that our characters then get killed off into the climax. So I've given that this is a comedy first. This is also a movie that I feel like we're supposed to dislike all the characters, except for Hope and Sam. Now Sam is portrayed by Bonini, and then Lane portrays Hope. Now, she dresses the most normally, I'd say, and she thinks for herself, Sam wants to fit in with these guys who are a little bit of jerks here, and I, I, I mean, they're a lot bit jerks, but we have Chad, who is Ben Vandeme, and then we have Pierce, who is Cooper Drip, Chad is dating Sarah, who is Stoughton, and then Paisley is dating Pierce, who is Sarah Buchanan, but what I'll say about this is they're your normal jock-type guys who... Are just kind of there where you don't really like them. And I feel like that's a throwback to the 1980s. They're just using modern slang. So they also feel like stereotypical jocks and cheerleaders, just kind of the Gen Z version. It just makes you know that we're rooting for the monster here. But I do want to pull the, pull the acting here. Despite me not liking most of the cast, they do what they're supposed to for their characters. I'd say Buchanan, Stoughton, Vandermeer, and Drip are all good looking. They fit what they're supposed to be. They also get a response out of me, which is what I'm looking for when it comes to acting. So that's well done. If you're going to blame anything, it would be the writing for not giving them any debt. But this is also supposed to be a popcorn movie, so it's fine. Thought that Lane and Bonini were solid as our heroes. Then we also have an appearance here by Lee Feely as Jim, who is a fisherman in the beginning. If anything, I just wish they would have brought him back in the end. It's not a major issue, but it would have just kind of brought everything full circle. But there isn't much more to say for the story of the acting, so let's go to the filmmaking. If you couldn't tell from the title, this alligator's all CGI. It adds to the comedy, though. I'll give it that. My problem, though, is that this is intentionally trying to make a bad movie, and I'm not a fan of that. I know there are, though, so if you're the target audience, I think you'll have fun here. I did think the practical after effects of the attacks were solid. The cinematography was fine. I did love the setting, and it's also funny that the cabin is owned by the type of person that it is. That adds to the comedy there, and it makes sense with the weapons they find. Other than that, the soundtrack was what it was it did fit the type of the vibe of the movie as well it does go whimsical which i'm not always the biggest fan of because again it just feels like you're trying too hard 
but inclusion is a fun low budget shut off your brain type movie this leans into being absurd i did think that this was fine in the sense that we have a group of mostly unlikable characters to kill off the cgi here is intentionally bad the bright spot would be the setting and the cinematography there I'm not the target audience. If you want a movie that is bad on purpose, I'd recommend this, especially with friends and drinks. It also feels in line with today's full moon films from what I kind of have gathered. I haven't watched a lot of them, but my rating here for bad CGI Gator is going to be a 3.5 out of 10. And my last mini review before I get into an episode of Fear the Walking Dead is going to be Don't Torture a Duckling. It goes by the original title of Non Si Cevesia Un Paparino. This is from 1972, directed by Lucio Fulci. Now, the writers here, we have quite a few, so let me go ahead and just break down what everybody did here. And the story was between Fulci and Roberto Giovatti, and then the screenplay was written between Fulci Giovatti and Gianfranco Clerici. Now, this stars Florinda Bulkin, Barbara Bochette, and Tomas Milian. This is a horror mystery thriller film. It's a giallo, if you didn't know, but this is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a reporter and a promiscuous woman try to solve a series of child killings in a remote southern Italian town rife with superstition and distrust of outsiders. So this is the film that I heard about on horror podcasts and I was intrigued. I knew this was one of the more popular giallis, and this is a subgenre that I needed to see more of at that time. So this is one of the first ones that I have ever seen from writer-director Fulci that was in this subgenre. And I've actually given it a rewatch now that I'm more versed in this in these type of films, as well as it allowed me to uh, I've also been more versed in Fulci films, as well as you know, trying to do a my Trek to the Twos rewatch here as well. And speaking that this is during Italian Horror Month, that also adds to it. So I want to start is that I didn't expect coming into what we were going to get for this first watch. I knew that there was a killer, that it was a murder mystery, and that children were dying. Having now seen this a couple times, I thought I knew who the killer was, and I know the second time I definitely remembered. But listening to a podcast, it actually spoiled it, but by the time I got to watching this, I had forgot. But this film does well in giving us red herring to throw the audience off, and I'd say this is a well-crafted gialli there. Now for the second watch, I did remember, so as I was saying... It allowed me to kind of focus to make sure that Fulci didn't cheat, and that was something I also appreciated there. So this goes much deeper than what I was expecting to be honest originally as well. I like the setting of this being in this village that is isolated. They're stuck in their beliefs, and they don't like outsiders. It reminds me of how people in my hometown can be. Those that are a little bit different stick out, and it feels that way when I come home. Most of the villagers are also religious. That isn't too shocking as this takes place in Italy where Catholicism is a big deal there. Something I noticed this time as well is that we have this major road in the background, like a major highway. That tells me they aren't too far out of the way while still being how they are. So there's also some people who are different though. This develops a deeper issue and that I noticed being singled out for those that don't have the conventional beliefs. Now we have the character of... Makara, who is portrayed by Bulkin, now she is blamed for the killings because she's a witch. It gives us these odd things that she does, so it makes you wonder if she is the killer. What is interesting is that there isn't a lot of evidence aside from her rituals. There's also this sad aspect that comes out of this involving mob mentality, which is quite scary. Then we also have the character of Patrizia, portrayed by Boucher who is considered because she keeps appearing around the areas where the murders are happening. She comes from money, but didn't necessarily grow up there. I think her father was from the area, though. 
Now, she also has a drug problem, so there's also these, you know, weird scenes where she also has a bit of pedophilia or pedophilic tendencies. Now, there's also the character of Don Alberto Elevano, who is portrayed by Mark Poehler. Now, he's a local priest who gives off the vibe that something that he said the first time we meet him just doesn't sit right. He's a man of God, though, so it makes you question if he would do these things that are being done, especially with how religious the people are in the area. He's not their focal. But I like how these are all established how they are, so they are potential red herrings. So I have a couple other things that I want to point out, with the first being how mean-spirited this is. The killer's going after children, which you don't see a lot of. The other thing is the title of the film. I thought it was fitting for who the victims are, and when you realize why they use this title, it hit me and I loved it as well. Now, this that is a great thing there about Gialli, is that they usually had some amazing titles. Now, at the time of originally writing this, I was limited in my knowledge of the subgenre, as I've been saying. I have now seen a good handful more and have a better grasp on it. I don't believe I figured out who the killer was, and I think this does well in showing us that person while it also not being too blatant. They do push red herrings, and I knew it couldn't be certain people. I just love how they developed this, and it was paced well, so that's a major credit to that. Now, what also helps here is the bringing this to life is the acting. Milian is an interesting character. He becomes a hero, but we don't get much of him in the first half of the film. He makes an appearance, and then the police kick him out. It isn't until the latter part of the second act that he takes over. His character of Andrea being an investigative reporter makes sense to solve the crime. Boche is another character I liked. She is someone that is a suspect, and it's hard to not consider her. This is classic for a giallo since she wants to stop the killings and clear her name. I thought that worked well off of Andrea. We also saw her nude, if you're curious there. I also credit Balkan. Then there's Irina Papas, and then Porel. And the rest of the cast around the top world was needed. All the suspects give off creepy vibes that you could see why they could be the killer. So where I'm going to finish off filmmaking as coming in knowing what I did about Fulci, I was expecting more effects than what we got. I'll admit, my first forays though into his films were like Zombie and the Gates of Hell trilogy. This is subdued and that's not an issue though. It is subtle with its effects, but they are quite effective on top of that. Not all of this works as... There's some things that make me laugh. Two examples happen at the end of the film, and there's one with a boy underwater. The dummy stuff used in Italian movies just has a bit of charm that I'm a sucker for now. Cinematography is great in capturing where this takes place, and it gives you that isolated feel that it needs. I did want to give credit to that. Now, in conclusion, I enjoyed this movie despite how bleak its outlook and critiques are. This has social commentary that I didn't originally know as it looks at people's beliefs and how mob mentality can be dangerous. This is well made. The cinematography is the bright spot there. I'd also credit the effects. Not everything is great here, but it is effective. The acting is good with Bolkin, Milian, and Boche leading the way there. This is up there as one of my favorite Fulci movies for sure. Probably his best giallo that I've seen to date. If you like him as a filmmaker or the subgenre, this is a must-see. So my rating here for Don't Torture a Duckling is going to be a 9.5 out of 10. And then, as I was saying, the last thing I'm going to do here is an episode of Fear the Walking Dead, which is entitled Anton. This is directed by Danae Garcia. This was written between Robert Kirkman, Tony Moore, and Charlie Adler. This stars Kim Dickens, Coleman Domingo, and Danae Garcia as well. This is a drama, horror, sci-fi, you know, it's a that spin-off, The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead. But the synopsis is, Strand fights to maintain the peace of his new life after the sudden arrival of an old friend threatens it with the ghosts of the past. So this one I was kind of intrigued just because we've been following a lot of these people for a while, but should say that here in this, Victor Strand is now pretending to be a guy named Anton. He's holding up in a resort with German tourists. 
and it looks like he's actually in a relationship with Frank, who's portrayed by Isha Blocker, and then he has a son of Klaus, portrayed by Julian Gray. Now, Madison shows up, portrayed by Kim Dickens, of course, and his group is curious about her, especially because she recognizes Victor. So she's trying to rebuild Padre, and this is something that kind of happened in the first half of this season since we've come back from the break now. But Victor and Frank are looking for Klaus because he disappears with Madison. And then another group is looking for her, and they're at odds with Daniel's crew as well, as I believe that guy is Russell, portrayed by Randy Bernalis. So what ends up happening here is that Victor is trying to make amends for what he's done in the past. I was kind of wondering who this new group is, and I'm not going to necessarily spoil it, but a character from the past shows up, and he is leading them. And I will say this is also somebody who was kind of a villain in the previous stuff. Also, it's going back to, I think, like season two or three, something along those lines. But Daniel and his crew do end up showing up here as they are helping Madison to rebuild Padre and their own ideas. And what's going to end up here is Victor has to come to terms with what he's done in the past. And actually, it might also have a correlation here with Alicia as he has an item, whoever this main villain's going to be. So I'm trying to give you, I mean, I'm a whole month behind and everything, but I'm also trying to go a little bit vague here. Again, I've kind of gotten a little bit burned out on all these shows and everything, but I did give Anton, this episode here, a 6.5 out of 10. And I will continue to watch these to see where this ends. I believe this season is actually going to be the final one for this offshoot as well. So that's all I have for mini reviews here. So let me get you over the trailer of my first featured review then. But you can't spend a night? Not all night. So where'd you move here from anyway? Eastern Shore. Try that. Dad! You didn't. When the cops get here, you have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Are there lots of us? I don't actually meet many others. Why'd you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. I came looking for you. I smelled you. You can smell me half a mile away. Can you do that? Not that far. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. I thought you might be hungry. For hens? No. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? Not gonna be like that. We don't have many options. Either you eat, you off yourself, or you lock yourself up in there. We're dangerous. One of us. Jake's teaching me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but we can hurt one another just as bad. Go, 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 go. It's too much. We gotta do this. We have to do it. You've been following me. We got unfinished business. You don't think I'm a bad person. All I think is that I love you. 
And for my first featured review here is going to be Bones and All. This is from 2022. It was directed by Luca Guadagnino. I think it's how you say his last name. Now, this was written by David Kajganik. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But the original writer of the novel was Camille DeAngelis. This stars Timothy Chalamet, uh, Taylor Russell, and Mark Rylance, while also featuring... Kendall Coffey, Andre Holland, Ellie Parker, Madeline Hall, Christine Dye, Sean Bridgers, Anna Cobb, David Gordon Green, Michael Stahlbarg, Jake Horowitz, Marshall Jackson, Marcia Dangerfield, or Marcia Dangerfield, I'm not sure how to say that, but Jessica Harper, Burgess Bird, and Chloe Sibney. This is a drama horror romance film that is a co-production between Italy and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis here being a young woman embarks on a 1,000 mile odyssey through America where she meets a disenfranchised drifter, but all roads lead back to their terrifying past and to a final stand that will determine where love can survive their otherness. So this is a movie that I learned about originally when I was writing news articles for a website. I didn't know much about the concept of the story outside that it was based on a novel from DeAngelis. The idea behind it intrigued me. Also knowing that Guadagnino did the Suspiria remake, that piqued my interest even more. I missed this last year as that two hour plus runtime scared me off, especially when this came out. So I figured that this, you know, being Italian Horror Month as the most popular co-production that I hadn't seen would go ahead and make it a featured review here. So then let me start with the featured notes and with our director of Guadagnino. He's home 37 films and I've seen two. Those are the only two in genre with this and Suspiria remake. Now there are two additional directors with Sam Elvilo being first. They've done two films in this capacity. This is the only one in horror. The other is Paul Schneider. He's done 12 things and I've seen 11. That's kind of crazy. He's worked on Avenger films as well as the Hangover series and even Talladega Nights. This is the only one in horror that he's done. Now moving to our writers, first will be Catch Ganonic, if that's how you say that. But he's written seven. I've seen four. All are horror. I've seen this, the Suspiria remake, the Invasion, that one with Nicole Kidman that is a take on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And he also did Blood Creek. Now the original writer is DeAngelis, and this is her only credit. Then to the cast, first is Russell. She's been in 18 films. I've seen two. Both are in horror with this and Escape Room. She's been in six total. She was in the Escape Room sequel, and it looks like there's a third one coming out there. She was also in Down a Dark Hall and Dead of Night from 2015, which I have not seen those ones. Then her co-star of Chalamet. I've seen 33 movies of his. Or he has 33 movies. I've seen three. Not in horror. I've seen Interstellar and Little Women. He has four in horror. I've only ever seen this. His other three are shorts with Horror Show, Clown, and Butcher's Hill. Lastly, I'll look at Rylance then. He's been in 41 Things, of which I've seen four. Not Horror, I've seen Dunkirk, Ready Player One, and Anonymous. This was the only one that he's done in horror, shockingly. So then, let's get into this one. We start in the halls of a school. It is quite interesting is that we are seeing painted landscapes, and with how this plays out, that's quite fitting. We are following Marin, who's portrayed by Russell, as she is a bit of an outcast but has one friend in Sherry, portrayed by Coffee. She invites Marin to a sleepover, and Marin relays that her father won't let her. Sherry tells her where she lives and suggests sneaking out. This goes disastrous, though, with what Marin does, as she ends up biting off the finger of her friend. Marin flees home, and her father, who is portrayed by Holland, has been expecting this. 
He's tried to shield and protect her, but has failed. They, they flee into the night. We then jump to when Marin is 18. All right, when she turns 18, actually. Her father abandons her, leaving her with a cassette tape to explain why and with her birth certificate there for her. So this becomes a coming-of-age tale and journey for Marin. Her first goal is to find her mother. The town that she is in is listed on her birth certificate. She is started in Maryland and needs to get to Minnesota. She doesn't have a whole lot of money, though. It is on this voyage that she meets Sully, who is portrayed by Rylance, who is the first person like her that she meets, and this is in Ohio. They're both cannibals. He smelled her when she got off the bus, and he had to meet her. Sully takes her to a house with a dying woman, and they both feed on her. So then Marin doesn't stay, though. She continues her expedition, much to the dismay of Sully. Her next stop is Indiana. She meets there is Lee, portrayed by Chalamet. This turns to a whirlwind romance as they run off together. They meet others like them, and Marin continues her search for her mother. Things don't go as planned, and not everyone is as nice, even if they are like them. We also learn what the term bones and all means. So let's leave my recap introduction of the characters. Now, I could have delved a bit deeper into this movie with my recap, but I thought what I would give you there is more of just like an idea. There isn't a whole lot to the story, to be honest, though. What it is more about is like Marin and a bit about Lee finding themselves. This takes place what I believe in the 1980s, and I'm glad they did this as it makes a simpler story to tell. As we don't have things like the cell phones, and if this is set in a modern world, the internet would make some of the stuff that they're doing a whole lot more difficult. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, let me talk about the characters. Marin has had a difficult life. Her father has isolated her, and he comes off strictly. I do like this, though, because we set up that he is, and then we see why immediately. Marin has an insatiable need to eat human flesh. This doesn't delve into why, but it seems like a genetic thing. I should say she doesn't always need to feed. It kind of seems like one of those things that like she eats normal food pretty regularly, but every now and then it goes too long where she has to do this. But her father loves her. He just can't, he can only do so much. I do hate him for abandoning her like he does. As a father myself, it's heartbreaking to see. She doesn't know what to do with herself, so she goes on a mission to find her mother or anything that she can about herself. I thought that Russell was great in this role. She seems like a young woman who needs to find herself, and I bet that she is channeling real-life things into this role. I just doubt she's a cannibal in real life. At least I hope not. So as a story guy, I do love to know more about what she has. What I do like, though, is that she learns about it by meeting others like her. There is Sully, who seems like a nice older man. There's a darkness about him, so I don't blame Marin for wanting to get away. Now, Rylance is great in this role as well. Now, to build on her fear, Sully doesn't disappear completely from the story. I would be remiss to not talk about Chalamet here as well. The bulk of this is her figuring out her feelings for him and vice versa. They also explore more about how to handle their issues since he is like her as well. Unlike her, though, he accepts it and doesn't want to explore why, which causes problems. Chalamet is great here as well. Now, before moving from the story completely, I, I love that this is a road movie. This does well in setting up Marin and then having her hit the road. She learns the ways of the world as she is out there, and it causes her to grow. I did appreciate that. It can be scary with things like meeting Sully or this duo of Brad, who is portrayed by Green, and Jake by Stahlberg. It can be magical as well as heartbreaking with Lee. It's also eye-opening with Barbara Kearns, portrayed by Harper, and Janelle, portrayed by Sevney. I'm a big fan of movies like this, and that works for me. 
So let me just go ahead and, you know, that should be enough for the story there. Let's go over to the acting some more. I've already said how good Russell, Chalamet, and Rylance are. They really do carry this. I also thought that Holland was good in his role along with Bridger, Stahlberg, Horowitz, Harper, Sevney, and Cobb. And the rest of the catch just kind of rounds this out for what was needed and pushing these characters to where they end up. So before I do a bit of trivia, all that's left then is filmmaking. This is more brutal than I was expecting. We don't see everything, and I should point that out. There is a finger-biting scene and close shots of, like, organs being pulled out. This is a good framing since it makes it look real. I did appreciate that. And it also makes it feel like we're seeing it, and we're not getting the seams. So, like, there's some realism that it could be happening. This also does well in capturing like rural Midwest United States, which is also great. Now, having grown up in Michigan and now living in Ohio, that's where I'm from, I thought that this was good. This also helps with that road feel as well. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So then for some trivia here, during production, the film's crew was burglarized. The city council of Cincinnati with the mayor's support ultimately provided $50,000 in security costs. The director stated in a video for Vanity Fair that the fringe in Marin's hairstyle came directly from the haircut of the character from Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs. The character in question is Stacy Hupka, who is portrayed by Lauren Rosselli. Marin's birth certificate says that she was born in Menomee, Wisconsin. This was the home of the famous cannibal and serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Wisconsin is also where Ed Gein was from and another famous serial killer who accused of cannibalism, though he denied this. Most of the films in Sabo have cl collaborated with Guadagnino in the past. We have Chalamet and Stolberg are in Call Me By Your Name. Harper was in Suspiria. Sivney was in We Are Who We Are. And then we also have Francesca Scorsese, who worked with Guadagnino on We Are Who We Are, was originally announced as part of the main cast, but does not appear in the final film. She does receive a special credit in the thanks. Guadagnino was fascinated by Americans' love for corn, but not being American, didn't know how to incorporate it. So the grocery store scene where Marin and Lee meet, you see a random display of corn in a metal basket as Lee ha leads the man out. First film to have distribution rights acquired by MGM after the studio was acquired by Amazon on March 17, 2022. Jessica Harper is a horror film veteran. She starred in the original Suspiria and had a role in the 2018 remake. She's also in Shock Treatment. The film's cast includes one Oscar winner in Rylance and two Oscar nominees in Chalamet and Sevigny. This is the third film Russell was in in three years to feature lead characters with their foreheads together on the poster. Interesting. Chalamet and Rylance previously appeared in Don't Look Up, but they didn't share scenes. Ethel Kane released the song Famous Last Words and Ode to Eaters, inspired by the film, commenting, Can't stop thinking about bones and all. This one's for Lee and Marin. The film deals with similar themes to Kane's debut album, Preacher's Daughter. Scorsese's role as Harmony was ultimately cut from the film. There's a monologue by Eric Boganzia playing on the truck's radio when the carnival worker is killed. Spoiler, I guess. Both Sevney and Holland starred in American Horror Story, though not sharing any scenes since they appeared in different seasons. Fun fact. So in conclusion, I can see why this movie is as popular as it is. There's a good story here. I enjoyed the coming of age tale and discovering your first love. This is done with the backdrop of being different. If anything, I'd like to know more about the infliction that Marin Lee and Sully have. It makes me consider reading the novel to see if there's more there. The acting is good though. Credit there to Russell, Chalamet, and Rylance. They carried it with the rest of the cast around in the software what was needed. This is well made, of course. Special credit to the effects, framing, and cinematography bringing even more realism. I rather enjoyed my time here and would recommend checking this out. 
Guadagnino is someone that is now two for two for me with things they've done in the horror genre that I've seen. So I'd like to see what he does next, and I'd like him to do more in the genre. But my rating here for Bones and All is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I'm not going to do a spoiler section. I don't really think there's anything additional I wanted to delve into. So let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Sirena me cantai li versi, stonga stu munno come non gestessi, m'hanno messo allo libro degli spersi. Nel nome del padre, del figliuolo, dello spirito santo, così sia. pietosa, Santa Monica lacrimosa, come vedi l'affetto di tuo figlio, così guarda l'amore di Purifu. Ti verrò presto sempre, non ti lascerò mai! Lasciami perdere! Signore Gesù Cristo, da questa creatura di Dio. And for my second featured review is going to be The Demon. This goes by the original title of Il Damonio. This is from 1963, directed by Brunello Rondi, and then this is written amongst Ugo Guerrara, Luciano Martino, and Rondi, and then he also came up with a story here. This is starring Dalia Lavi, Frank Wolf, and Anna Maria Avati. This is also featuring Tizinia Cassetti, Dario Dolci, Franca Mozzani, Maria Teresa Orsini, Rossana Roveri, 
Maria Cirello, Giovanni Cristofanelli, Francesca Farinacci, Luca Pascarella, Leah Russo, and Nicola Taglacozzi? Cozo? Something like that. But it's a drama horror film that is a co-production between Italy and France. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis here being a lonely, sexually uninhibited young peasant is subjected to an exorcism after she hexes a man who rejects her advances. So this is a movie that popped out of my radar when I was looking at a list on Letterboxd for the top rated horror films of all time. I put this one on a list of ones that I would like to see to help continue expanding my knowledge base. This appeared as the highest rated horror film from Italy that I had not seen, so I figured it'd make a good double feature here with the most popular one on the podcast. So let's do some feature notes first. And I'll start with our director of Rondi. He has helmed 14 films, and I've only ever seen this one, only one he's done in genre. I did actually see when I was looking at his filmography, since he worked with a great filmmaker that I'll get into later. There's some of those like heavy hitters that are on my list from that. But I've also seen that he did, I think, Black Emmanuel and White Emmanuel. Now we have a few additional directors here, and I'll start with Sergio Martino. He only did this role twice. His other was Hercules Against Rome, which isn't in horror, so this would be the only one falling into genre. Then there is Paolo Bianchini. He has done 17 movies like this, and this is the only one in horror that I've seen. Now there's also Renita Paolucci. This is their only horror film and that I've seen from their works. Let's move over to the writers. Bringing back up Rondi, he has written 26 works, and I've seen two. Not in horror, I've seen Bocchio, I think that's how you'd say that, or Bacacaccio, something like that, at 70. That's the only one that I have seen, and this is the only one that is in horror that I've seen from his filmography. Then over to Luciano Martino, this is the brother to Sergio. I've seen four of his 77 that he's written, all are in horror. Here he did seven, though. I've seen your vice is a locked room and only I have the key, the whip in the body, this and delirium, photo of Julia, I think that's how it is, or Gioa, something like that. I know I had the same problem last time I brought this title up. I have not seen Island of Fishmen, The Murder Clinic, or Dinner with a Vampire. Then last writer I'll look at is Herrera. They did 49 motion pictures. I've seen two, both in horror with this and the whip in the body. Then over to the acting. Now, the first one I'm going to be looking at here is Lavi. She has done 27, and I've seen three. Not in horror, I've seen Casino Royale from 1967. That's a take on James Bond, but it's more of a comedy. Now, in horror, I've seen two, which is this and The Whip in the Body. Then over to her co-star of Wolf. He has done things like Once Upon a Time in the West, which I have seen. He has five that he's done in horror. While having done 56 total, I believe that was the number that he did over there. So I've only ever seen this one in genre, but he also has The Wasp Woman, Death Walks on High Heels, Beast from Haunted Cave, and Carnal Circuit. And those are all the ones that I have not seen from him. Then the last actress I'm going to look up here is Avati. She was in two movies. I've only ever seen this, and this is the only one that she's done that was in horror. So then, let me then get into a disclaimer that we get in the beginning of this movie, claiming that this is a true story. The rights, spells, and possession are depicted as truthfully as possible. This is scientifically verified according to this disclaimer, but they also want us to know that there are pagan as well as religious beliefs being shown in this movie. 
I bet that this is closer than things would be that we would get today. In What I mean there is that this is probably closer to what they're saying is a true story than stuff that you'll see nowadays. But a big portion of this movie shows us how people in a village like this would live. And they're kind of explaining the lengths that they'll go with their beliefs. So we are following Perfacata, portrayed by Lavi. We show her as she wakes up and then poking herself with a needle to the point where it draws blood. She then cuts off a lock of her hair and presses against the wound with cloth. She then takes us into the kitchen where she burns it and takes the ashes. It is from this point that she hears her father and mother calling out, so she must hurry. So then this young woman does all this because she is in love with Antonio, portrayed by Wolf. We see her go to a church where those in attendance talk about her being a witch. This is loud enough for her to hear. I can see why they think that as she's reciting a curse in church. It is from here that she goes to Antonio's house and follows him. He visits his fiance and her family. His soon-to-be wife is played by Rosanna Rovri. Now, when he leaves, Pierfi heads him off and comes on to him. He rebuffs her advances but does kiss her. He blames her for hexing him, though. She offers him wine and reveals that she put a curse on him. It doesn't seem to work like she wants, though. Antonio gets married and Pierfi tries to interrupt. People outside stop her, though. She doesn't quit even though this is what's happening. She tries over and over again to use hexes and curses. This gets to the point where her family tries to help her, sending her to Uncle Giuseppe, who is portrayed by Taglia Cozo. Something happens to her in his care as he tries to exercise her demons. We also see that she might not want to be helped. And then we also see something happen to her with a sheep herder that she encounters who also attacks her. And it might actually be Uncle Giuseppe. I'm not fully sure. I need to rewatch this at some point in the future. But Pierfi is so madly in love with Antonio despite what happens that she won't quit. We do see that this town blames her for more than what she is doing to this man as well. So that's really where I'm going to leave my recap introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that this is an intriguing film that we're getting here. Seeing the title and the poster, I thought that this made sense that this would be a possession film. Now, we do get that here, but it's not like we would get post The Exorcist, as in this is a grounded film that is looking at superstition and rituals, both pagan and religious-based. I also believe that this is calling into question whether Pierfi is possessed or not. So let me start with her and delve deeper into this. It is interesting that the moment we meet her, she is doing a ritual. She then goes to church and continues to recite a curse on Antonio. She is madly in love with him, and he doesn't reciprocate these feelings. Even when this man rebuffs her efforts and her life is on the line, she still calls out to him. Now I'll admit, I've been head over heels for somebody. I could see myself doing this to an extent. It's also a different time where there were less men around, or I mean just less available partners. Eventually though, you must look at yourself and realize that it isn't going to end well. I do think that Lavi was solid in her portrayal here as she brings his character to life. And I should also say that the trivia for this movie is claiming that this was her favorite role that she did out of all of her performances. So I want to stick with this character a bit more and look at something about her being whether or not she's a witch. Now she claims to be. She believes that she communes with the devil. I don't think she is and I also don't think she's possessed. She tries doing these rituals. Part of this is that everyone in town is also superstitious and they believe it's working. We see this even with religious people as they prepare Antonio for his wife's wedding bed. They try to ward off rain clouds as well with a ritual. 
There is also a couple of exorcisms that are being done here to help Purify. To me though, this is just people believing something and using evidence that isn't correlated. I also believe that we get people here who aren't taking accountability for their actions. Multiple times we see Antonio give in to lust and then blame her for hexing him. This embodies an issue that I have with religion and the people that follow it. I'll admit, I love the social commentary that we're getting here. So that should be enough for the story. It isn't the deepest, but it doesn't have to be here. This is more about getting what I've shared and seeing how the villagers react. What makes it work though is the acting. I've already said that Lavi was solid. I'd also say that Wolf was good as this man who is her target. She is in love with him and I get the idea that she has lust for her. But because she is a witch, he knows it won't end well for them. He instead wants to marry someone and have a large family. Pierfi needs to move on and respect what he has said. And I also think here's something here that she seems to be sexually more free and willing to do things. So, I mean, that partially is the reason that I think Antonio does lust for her. And I also enjoyed the performances here of Anna Maria Avanti and Mazzoni. The former is Sister Angela, where the other is Mother Superior, and the latter wants to help Pierfi, but they need her to want to help herself. Or, I mean, the exorcism isn't going to work here. Sister Angela believes the story is that she is possessed by a demon, which I'm not shocked there. I'd also say that Dolce was good as Don Tomasio. I think he was the... I think he's the father here of the... He's, like, the priest. He seems to want to help. And then the role that bothered me the most was Tagliacozzo's, who is Uncle Giuseppe. It is heartbreaking for what we have here, and I thought the acting was just solid across the board. So all that's left before one other piece of trivia is going to be filmmaking. This was well made. I'm not shocked to learn that Rondi seemed to have worked with Federico Fellini. So that's part of it. It also doesn't hurt that we have Luciano Martino working behind the camera along with his brother of Sergio. Now that I've given this information, the cinematography here is great. It captures this small village in the middle of the Italian countryside. That adds the realism to the movie. And I can also believe that this isolated location like this would be as superstitious and do these rituals like they would. There aren't a lot in the way of effects. We don't necessarily need them. I did like seeing the different rituals that were being set up and used. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. It is subtle and subdued, but I think it also adds fear in my opinion, as well as building that atmosphere. So then that bit of trivia that I was talking about here is the other part was Italian censorship visa 41064 delivered on 9-25-1963. So I've kind of just wasted my time there. Sorry. But in conclusion, this is a well-made movie. We aren't getting a traditional possession or exorcism movie. It is also coming out before The Exorcist, so that's part of it. What we get instead is looking at religion and how it isn't much different from pagan ideas. Both are doing rituals that don't necessarily fall in line. I thought the acting was good. Lavi carries this and everyone kind of pushes her to where she ends up. Pierfi is quite is frustrating as well. I thought that she this was well made from the cinematography being the strongest aspect there. Not one that I can recommend to everybody as it's more of an art house film that is carried by great acting. If that's what you're looking for, then give this one a watch. So my rating here for The Demon from 1963, goes by the other title, of course, of Il Dominio, is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section. Don't really necessarily think I need to. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Journey with a Cinephile. And welcome back one last time here. And just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff, 
If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast related, you can send it via that way. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On Threads, I'm David OSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing like my ratings on, whatnot. I know for Letterbox, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non-horror alike. Instagram, I will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing. My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for threads. And then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast-related different stuff over there. And I'll also direct you to the Nightclub Discord channel as I have a little section over there where we have some good conversations. I post all of my reviews and any new podcast episodes or some of the things I'm watching when I actually have time to post that. So keep an eye out over there and I'll have the link for that and everything else in the show notes there. And then I'm also going to direct you a way that you can actually listen to the show is going to be through the Pod Nation TV this is a streaming service and everything like that there will be a link in the blog posts for all of my episodes so if you'd like to listen to it that way it's kind of a cool little thing you can definitely do that through like roku tv and there's some other apps for it as well just as another way for you to consume this podcast if you decide to there's also a lot of other great shows that are on that network as well And for the next episode here is going to be getting into where I'm going to start watching as many 2023 rewatches as I can do, as well as I'm going to be watching as many new ones as I can get in as I prep for that year end list. And I'm also going to be doing that with trying to get some holiday and winter horror movies in there. So the first double feature I'm going to be doing for this one is going to be, I finally got around to watching VHS 85. sounded like, that was one that I wanted to watch when it hit, but you know, I was in the thick of everything, so I didn't have the time to do that. So that'll be one of the featured reviews. going to pair that up with a winter slasher type film of curtains and then i'm also going to be as i said doing all those other rewatches and new watches that i can slip in there as well and i also believe i'm going to be rewatching chronos for my traverse of the threes as that rewatch over there so i don't think there's anything else i need to get to speed with here then for this outro so what i will say is thank you so much for listening whatever you do today i hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.